Welcome to another episode of Talking Terror. I am Andrew Silk, standing in for regular host John Morrison. Today's episode is going to be a little bit unusual. The tables are turned. It's finally our chance to hear from Dr. Morrison himself, find out about his research, his interests, and essentially put him through the misery, pain, and suffering that he has inflicted on dozens and dozens of other terrorism researchers. Today's date is the 22nd of November, 2017. Uh, if any significant events happen after this date, obviously we won't be able to talk about it. Please follow us on Twitter at T-R-C-U-E-L and tweet to us with the hashtag TalkingTerror. Also, please check out our website at uel.ac.uk slash Turk. And you can find out information there and everything we get up to at Turk, our research, including our courses, the MSc in Terrorism and Counterterrorism Studies, and our book series with IB Taurus. But to today's task, John Morrison, finally, we have you where we want you. Um, I don't know what I've let myself in for here. Yeah, this, this is going to get mean and vicious. Um... <laughs> John, uh, the, 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 we always open with the same question whenever anyone is interviewed, and it's always, why did you get involved in terrorism? What was the attraction? What was the appeal? Um, how did you end up here? Well, similar to yourself and many others, I started off with a degree in psychology. Uh, I was studying in University College Dublin. Uh, I went in wanting to be a sports psychologist. So I still got that interest in sports psychologists, uh, psychology today. Um, but... As uh, the degree was, was going, uh, I grew interest in a variety of areas of psychology. Um, and my political interests really uh, took hold as well. So I came to my final year dissertation and uh, I wanted to do something on prejudice. Um, the role that prejudice uh, can play um, in general. Um, because I had been to... I'd be into a, a, a school where it was divided up, where you were divided up into what was called clans. Mm -hmm. So it was the Irish for family. Um, and every clan would compete against each other in, in relation to sports, in academics, in discipline, and all combined together to see which was the, the best clan. And I found that there was sort of a prejudice uh, towards different clans. So people would say, oh, Clan Frontius, they're the Messers, or Clan Wira, they're the Nerds, or Clan Antna, they're, uh, they're really good at sport. Or, and it was randomly selected groups. Mm -hmm. like people were randomly selected into different groups. And I found this fascinating that there would be this, these opinions about what it meant to be a person in these groups. And there was prejudice about, about the people there. So I went to my uh, dissertation supervisor, Professor Kieran Benson, who had a huge influence on my career. And I said to him all this, I had my spiel, I thought, this is a brilliant idea. He was like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's interesting, John, but yeah, it's no applicability outside of uh, that school, really. But he knew I had that interest in politics, so he said, how about looking at prejudice in relation to anti-Americanism, anti-Israelism, or something like that? And uh, I thought about this, and... I went reading around the literature and I thought, yeah, actually, there's, there's something in this. And it was around the time, so this would have been around 2004, so we've got the Iraq War mm -hmm. going on. And um, so I started, I decided, yeah, anti-Americanism is the way to go uh, for my research. Um, so I thought, that, as in psychology, there's a scale to measure everything. Mm -hmm. uh, there wasn't for anti-Americanism. So I... I ended up developing one and, and testing it and really found it interesting. And through that 
reading that literature, I got uh, hold of literature on the psychology of terrorism. Um, and that's where I came across your work, the work of uh, Max Taylor, John Horgan and others. Um, and I found out then about um, an MSc in University College Cork, um, which was an MSc in forensic psychology, but had a module on the psychology of terrorism. Um, and then I, w I went down, I did that alongside um, some other some other uh, forensic psychologists as well. There was uh, John Horgan and Sean mm. Hammond there. Um, and John, as, as you know, and as I'm sure our listeners know from listening to me, Babylon for the past few weeks, uh, he's had a huge influence on my career. Um, and he ended up becoming my master's uh, supervisor and my, um, and my PhD supervisor as well. But as all this interest in the psychology of terrorism was going on, I also was looking back on my upbringing. I'm from Sligo uh, in the northwest of the Republic of Ireland. Um, and I grew up during the 80s and 90s and would have had quite... Um, and exposure through the media, but also being close to the to the border as well on the effects that uh, the troubles had had, um, and never direct, never really direct uh, interaction with the violence, but um, very in, uh, a, a large amount of indirect interaction with it uh, in relation to the people I, I met, especially during the summer. We would have had a lot of people from the north coming down to Sligo to get away during marching season. Mm -hmm. um, been from Sligo and spending a lot of time in Mullock Moor as well. It was where Lorne Mountbatten had been uh, murdered. Um, and I had a, I was looking back as well on my history lessons during, um, during my secondary school education. And I had the, a really influential teacher there, called, a guy called Father Malcolm, who would really have taught us about the troubles and about the background of Irish history. And it was... It was this interest that I was bringing to that module on psychology of terrorism with John. Um, and I ended up um, doing a dissertation, analysing autobiographies of why people became involved in, um, in, in provisional IRA um, activity. I looked at the autobiographies of Sean O'Callaghan, Maria Maguire, Eamon Collins, they were the three uh, that I focused on. And I really got in-depth to try and get that understanding from a human perspective, getting away from that, the whole uh, differentiation between what a terrorist is and what a non-terrorist is, just trying to understand from normal human interactions what happened and the role that the context played and why people would be getting involved there. Um, and it, from analysing these autobiographies, it really helped. Within the, that MSc class, John uh, was in the midst of writing his, uh, his book, The Psychology of Terrorism. Um, so we were guinea pigs in the class, really, like, because he was, the readings that we had for each class were draft chapters of this book. Um, so um, shameless exploitation of a student's there by John Horgan listeners. That's, <laughs> exactly. that's what that is. Um, exactly. Exactly. And, and, and it's a nice introduction because of the works that you highlight as being the key influences on, 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 on your career, essentially. John Horgan's The Psychology of Terrorism is number one. And I'm beginning to, 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 to see why if, it was, if you had a, a kind of a advanced copies, more or less, as, as, as your work. But tell us more about why... Um, the Psychology of Terrorism is such an important and influential book. 
Yeah, well, this, I think this book, it really, it really highlights the key issues surrounding uh, how we should look at terrorist involvement from a psychological point of view. I put down the first edition as being the most influential on me, but uh, the second edition is definitely a really good book that people will go to. The reason I put the first edition was because of that interaction with it in the in the tutorials. But he lays out his framework of terrorist involvement, looking at it from pre-involvement, um, where there, the initial engagement with the group is going on, to what it actually means to be involved, to actually disengaging from the group, to leaving the group behind. Uh, he gives a great overview of what the past has said in relation to the psychology of terrorism, how we should dis how we should be critically analysing uh, what's been seen uh, and what's been found the whole time. Really uh, critical of the the previous literature, which was talking about uh, the role that psychopathy played, mm. um, similar to your own work, uh, emphasising the the role that. When we're looking at, at these terrorist actors, we shouldn't look at them any differently to looking at people in any in any role, in any career, in any uh, activity. And it's understanding that hu that normal human interaction can really lead us forward. Um, it goes beyond, as I said, it looks at disengagement. So it goes beyond that that question: Why do people come become involved? But it tries to to look and to differentiate between the different stages of involvement. Uh, it's very easily accessible for people as an introductory text to the psychology of terrorism mm -hmm. as well. And it's, it allows, it breaks it down and says, look, the reason why someone becomes involved in the first place might be very different to the reason why someone stays involved. And that might be very different to why someone would leave the group ultimately as well. And that we need to understand this. We need to understand the heterogeneity of the stages as well as the heterogeneity of the roles that people have as well and the importance that context plays the importance that social influences play as well it's not all about the individual within themselves but it's how they interact uh, with the overall surroundings and it's it was this this focus on looking at it from a non-abnormal psychology point of view a non-clinical point of view that really hit home to me mm. because when I would consider uh, the autobiographies that I was analyzing when I would consider any in, any discussion of engagement in terrorist activity that I had I had come to engage with in relation to the troubles especially there wasn't clinical psychology that was able to explain it, it was social psychology that mm -hmm. was explaining it to me yeah. um, forensic psychology in places as well but I found that this really hit home and hit the nail on the head as a good starting point a great mm -hmm. starting point and he's de developed on from that as well uh, through his own individual writings as well as through his research with Max Taylor his research with Paul Gill with Kirk Braddock with others as well um, it really uh, has become a sem sem seminal text um, for anyone looking mm. at the psychology. Thing. No, I, I agree with you. I think it's a benchmark yeah. work. And, 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 I, and I think that the second edition is, I mean, I think I actually think both editions are worth looking at. Definitely. Uh, uh, it's, it's one of those strange books where, where 
Um, the second edition is quite different. It, it looks at things that aren't touched on at all in the first edition. But I actually think both of them are, are, are worth looking at. And um, yeah, and it, I know I know from John, he he was saying. If I'm going to do a second edition, I might as well make it worthwhile. I'm not going to just change a line here and there. I want to make it oh, yeah. a different book. And I think that really comes through. I think it does. And I think it's 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 incredibly influential piece of work in terms of any any work dealing with the psychology of terrorism, radicalization. I mean, it's 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 its influence is enormous. So I, I wasn't surprised at all to see that um, to see that feature. Now, your next book that you flag up is an interesting one. Uh, and it's a book I'm familiar with as well and, and, and some other... Um, listeners will also have heard of it. It's Eamon Malley and David McKittrick's Endgame in Ireland. So this is very much a focus on Northern Ireland, the, com uh, the Troubles, <coughs> and essentially the closing stages of, yeah. of the Troubles. Now, I'm, I'm, this, I'm guessing, is kind of ties into your own PhD research yeah. and the work that you were doing, and, and very much your field work in Northern Ireland was kind of in the peace process era when a lot of stuff was happening. But... Why did you pick out um, Eamon Malley and David McKittrick's book? What, what was it that gets this into your top three well, list? This was the trickiest book to pick because I wanted to pick a book uh, that dealt with Northern Ireland because as listeners will know and as anyone who's read my work would know, the majority of my focus has been on Northern Ireland and specifically on violent dissident republicanism and split within Irish republicanism. Uh, and that's what my PhD was. It's, uh, it was an a look at splits in, our, in the Irish Republican movement, but that's not how my PhD started out. When, when I was leaving Cork, um, I wanted to do my PhD in Cork mm -hmm. under John's supervision, but he moved to St. Andrew. Um, so as, our, as, as was to happen a few times afterwards, I followed him. Um, he couldn't get rid of me. Um, and I started off doing a PhD looking at uh, radicalization of Western jihadists, uh, Western European jihadists. All right, so that's very different from uh, yeah, from, from what I Ireland. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I was about a year into it, and uh, I think every football website was checked regularly by me, more so than I was doing any reading. And I, it dawned on me, this PhD isn't working out, and I'm going to drop out. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember I was in the, the for anyone who's in St. Andrews who would know this, this office, the communal PhD office, and it was just myself and Dr. Faye Donnelly there, uh, both of us doing our PhDs. And I turned to Faye and go, Faye, I'm dropping out, that's it. And she was, she, she was just new enough into, into the PhD there. She got the fright of her life. She was there, okay, just take a time, go for a walk, go and talk to your supervisor. This isn't, uh, this isn't the way to do it. And I went to, to John, and I'd always, I'll always be grateful to him for this. I said to him, same, I'm going to drop out. This isn't working out. It's not for me. I'm going to go and do something else. He said, don't make any decision now. He said, don't open any book on terrorism. Um, come back to me in a few months. Take a break. Um, don't rush into a decision that you might regret just on a whim, uh, out of frustration. Um, come back to me in a month or two. Um, and tell me then if you really want to um, if you really want to drop out so I took him up on this and I went to visit a friend in the States I, I took time away from the PhD um, and then I came back and I decided okay where was my where did my interest start in this and I decided and I realized it was really from my experiences in relation to Northern Ireland and uh, John said Think of if there's any other topic that you'd really want to, to do. And his book on psychology of terrorism and the role of disengagement really was the thing that was of interest to me. In disengagement was of interest because it really isn't something, and definitely wasn't back then, something that was being researched uh, too much. 
And I thought, this is it. I'm going to do something on disengagement in relation to Northern Ireland. And I decided I'll pick up an easy read um, mm. uh, on Northern Ireland. So I, I had that on my shelf. I think my grandmother had given me a copy of it. Um, and it's, it's a book that's based on a TV series. Um, and I read the book and I got to the section on 1986. And there's this paragraph on the split in the provisional IRA. And it's about the origins of the continuity IRA, the origins of Republican Sinn Féin. And the influence that this had in, um, the in the peace process in the over and the influence this had on Irish republicanism as a whole. I thought, ah, that's interesting. That's something that you really don't read about that much splits. Now, you, you obviously had the famous Brendan Behan quotes and stuff, but you never really see in-depth analysis in it. I went back to John and said, I want to do something on disengagement. I think there should be a chapter on splits here. And he said, oh, that's interesting. Um, then, it, as it came to pass, it... The whole dissertation focused on, on splits. And uh, I realised there was really something in this, and I was really fascinated by it. Um, and when you look at the overall terrorism literature as a whole, you would see that the splits uh, literature ended up in the end of terrorism literature. Mm. That when you looked at splits, it was, okay, it's synonymous to a terrorist group ending. Mm. But when I looked at splits... You had so much happening afterwards that it was the origins of a lot of things. Like if you mm. considered the split in 1969 in the provisional IRA, this was the dawn of the troubles. This is what was the birth of the provisional IRA. If you looked at that from the end of terrorism point of view, it got it completely wrong. So this book widely influenced me to, to pick the, the topic that I picked. I could have picked... Uh, the Bishop and Mali book, The Provisional IRA, I could have picked any of Richard English's books. I, there's so many books I could have picked, but that is the one that really guided me to the topic that I was going to look at in the end. Um, and it, it pushed me to, to go and do my fieldwork in Northern Ireland, uh, to live in the Linen Hall Library going through all the files, <laughs> uh, to interview left, right and centre, knock on doors and be told, no, go away, and then just follow up again and try and get interviews and stuff. And it, it really... It's the it's probably the book that kept me in the PhD yeah. and changed my PhD as well. Well, it absolutely did. If you if initially you're starting off with jihadis and then you're moving instead to back to Northern Ireland yeah. and dealing essentially with with the IRA and the provosts and, and splits, it, it it's a massive change. Yeah. One one of the things that strikes me, I mean, it, when when you were talking about your master's dissertation and and you're analysing the autobiographies of people like Sean O'Callaghan and, and, and others. I know from your later work, you get to interview face-to-face -face yeah. some of those people. And what was that like, having studied the autobiography to death, to then actually meet the real person and talk with the real person? What, what was that like? It was a really, really interesting situation. And it would have happened with a number in relation to a number of different people. Um, I, obviously, you mentioned Sean O'Callaghan there, who's recently uh, passed away. I met with him on a number of occasions to interview him and to talk to him about his experiences. Um, I met with people like Martin McGuinness, Jerry Adams, others like that as well, um, who I've been growing up living with their stories about them. The thing that struck me about each of those individuals is the normality. Mm -hmm. The normality of each individual, it's like the two of us sitting down chatting. Um, and then at the back of my mind, it was, it was the same when I met with, uh, with Rory O'Brodig especially as well, who was the leader of Republican Sinn Féin, political wing of the continuity IRA. 
just the normality of them, the way that, similar to what John was saying in his book, it's, it's not any, anything to do with clinical psychology that will explain uh, their involvement in these groups. Something, it's a lot more to do with just normal everyday contexts. It's to do with social psychology, the way they interact with their history, the way they interact with their surroundings. And I found that it was, I always had in the back of my mind, okay, we've got this chat going on, but in the back of my mind, I'm always thinking, but I know the things that, and everyone knows the, the things that these people have been responsible mm. for. Um, and they're horrific. Uh, situations that they've been responsible for and that can be quite off-putting I found that that could be quite off-putting during the the interviews and it was something that you always had there uh, in the back of your mind but what the interviews were doing and meeting these people was getting an understanding an understanding of the the reasons why they were involved in in different things and obviously because I was looking at splits I was looking at the legal activity within an illegal organization oftentimes so they were quite comfortable uh, talking about those issues because it's not to do with the bombing it's, it's not, not to do with an attack and it's something that they hadn't been asked about as much as say someone asking okay tell me about your involvement in the hunger strike say, for example. <laughs> so they were really interested in it and especially yeah. for the the distance they were passionate because it was the justification of their origins, the justification of their continued existence were these splits. And it was still quite raw when you talk to people in Republican Sinn Féin or the Continuity IRA about something that happened in 1986 and you're talking to them in 2007. Mm-hmm. It's still raw then mm-hmm, for them. Mm-hmm. And it defines who they are. It defi- like For them, there was a sort of... There was a re, um, redefinition of what the enemy was, of who the opposition was in the aftermath of the split. So while prior to the splits, they were all together, all united, all were comrades. After the splits, while they were all trying to achieve a united Ireland, they were, and they were against the British, they were very much against each other, especially the dissidents being against the provisionals. Being against, uh, and the provisionals were dissidents to begin with themselves. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's important emphasizing. But... Yeah, you would find uh, that they would be quite passionate on, about this topic. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, but yeah, meeting them face to face, it was uh, it's it it was an interesting experience. Experience, experience, yeah. absolutely. Um, your next book, moving on, is one I have to admit I haven't come across before: "Exit Voice and Loyalty" by Albert Hirschman. Now, how how does this make it onto your list? What what's the what's the appeal here? So again. This book was, it was sort of one of those eureka moments uh, during a piece of research, trying to, and it's again, all these books relate to my, my PhD and the influence that they had on that, on that piece of work. Um, I started after engaging with the end of terrorism literature in relation to the splits and realizing this wasn't the way forward, this isn't the true explanation of why splits happened. I started looking a lot more at political organizational theory and um, I looked at the work of K.L. Lutz, um, Martha Crenshaw and others, and looking at how a terrorist organization is, can be the, is the equivalent of a political organization. The obvious difference is they use, utilize violence mm-hmm. to achieve their political aims. Um, and there would be a lot written on organizational theory by economists. Um, and Hirschman's book, Exit, Voice and Loyalty, 
talks specifically, it's quite a short book, um, it talks specifically about internal conflicts within, um, within organizations. He's coming at it from an economic, e economist point of view, but it's hugely influential in political science and international relations. So he's saying this can happen in political parties as well. I, rem I was in the past few hours, I was just having to look through it. And it's one of those books that everything is underlined. <laughs> on, and there's a note on everything. But like what Hirschman is saying is that in these internal conf conflicts, you have these options. You have the option to exit the group. You have the option to voice your concerns about what's happening, or you have the option to stay loyal, to stay loyal to the leadership, the membership, um, and, and the rest of the organization. And in it, it's going through how do organizations bring about significant changes? What are the organizations trying to achieve with those? How do they maintain the majority of support? How do they really um, make this successful? And alternatively, when are changes unsuccessful and when can they lead to organizational exit? Um, and this really influenced the framework that I put forward um, of how to understand mm. the splits in the Irish Republican uh, organizations. It's, it really laid out to me um, that there's a different stage process and differences between an even split and an uneven split. Um, it really made it clear in my mind why, say, the changes that the Goulding leadership of 1969 were trying to implement, why they were uh, unsuccessful internally and why the the similar changes to the Adams that the Ab Adams McGuinness leadership were trying to make in eighty in the mid seventies, mid eighties, and the nineties, and why that was more successful. And this it was really showing that the role that the necessity of preparation for these changes, uh, internal changes, uh, would would uh, they it, they really necessitated that in order to succeed. Um, changing one thing at a time, nothing too dramatic. And that, that in, then dissipates the uh, influence that the exit will have. Because if you are changing everything at once, you're more likely to have more people exit. Mm -hmm. You're more likely to have more people leave the group. And this, in turn, can have a significant detrimental effect on, uh, on the organization and the trajectory it's, it's taking. Whereas if you're putting the preparation in, you're making sure you've got support for these changes and you've got the circumstances for that, and only make the changes when that's uh, viable, you'll only have a smaller amount of people exiting. And that's what happened in 1986. You only had a small amount of people exiting to mm -hmm. form the continuity IRA, to form the Republican Sinn Féin. And the reason why these people were leaving is that the changes that were being made was changing the identity of the group, of what was important to the group in their mind. Whereas if you're changing loads of things, that could be changing the identity for loads of people. But if you're only changing that small thing, well, what might seem small historically, but to those people leaving it, it was huge. It will only be a smaller group of people. And you can therefore really move on from that a lot quicker. Mm. Um, and it really, it gave me a sort of sober way of looking at exactly what uh, what was going on here. Now, it doesn't fit perfectly, um, but it gives you a platform to understand. And this, these um, 
political organization literatures would really emphasize that the central goal uh, before achieving the public goods, before achieving uh, a united Ireland, say, before achieving a 30 to count a united socialist Ireland, that they, the organizations, first of all, needed to guarantee the survival. Uh, and it, the organizational literature always emphasized the need for the group to guarantee survival before they can move on. However, I felt that that didn't quite fit in relation to these groups. That survival, yes, it was key, but you needed to add an element onto that. Mm. That it was a survival in a form that the individuals recognized and respected. And when it came to the changes that led to distance moving away, it was these people were moving away because they no longer respected, they felt that the group and the organization was moving on a trajectory that they agreed with. Mm. And that's when they moved away then. So there was that addendum to that, the whole survival hypothesis that really opened this literature up to me then. Yeah, and I mean, we're kind of moving into the territory of your own publications and discussing them. But I think the, I mean, the Hirschman book, I have to say, is a really, um, it's an unusual find because this was, this is a 1970 book. So yeah. it's, it's, it's not, uh, you know, I'd be stunned to see it appear in anybody else's top three. But you can see the relevance, you can see how it ties into your work. And I think the, the, the focus on splits has raised, the, you know, raises a really important question. And this is something that really was driven home again and again in Northern Ireland. But it's a split can be a disaster in terms of not for the terrorist group, but actually for the conflict. Yeah. Because repeatedly what you saw with a split was that you had a more aggressive hardline faction emerge. And sometimes they went on to become much stronger, much more vibrant, much more popular than the more moderate um, um, uh, movement that they'd split from and you know, the provisionals or the if you want the classic example of that um, and uh, so they you know, the, and, you know we touched on it the literature which sometimes sees a terrorist group splitting as being the end of the terrorist group that's you know, you know that can be a big mistake and actually that might be a sign that things are about to get a whole lot worse not that they're about to get a whole lot better yeah and like it's very important that I, I I agree with you that there, a lot of these splits have have seen a more violent terrorist group emerge, but not all of them. Mm. Some splits actually give opportunity. Some splits have given opportunities for the peace process to take hold because some splits actually for some peace processes and I've, I've specifically obviously got my own research in Northern Ireland in mind here that. Some splits, some peace processes needed that hiving off of a small group of people in order for the parent organization to move forward with their politicization. Um, and that's actually what happened uh, in 86. That's what happened in the late 90s with the emergence of the real IRA as well. Um, it gave that opportunity. Um, and the preparation beforehand gave that opportunity. Whereas, and they're very uneven splits where the majority is going along with the parent organization it's going along with the changes they're making the politicization uh, the politicizing changes they're making and those for want of a better word those more hardliners are are leaving to form their own organization a smaller organization and it size of the organization isn't the be all and end all it's about the type of people who are joining it's about the skill set that they're bringing a lot of the time but when you look at the 69-70 split, very even split then. 
even in, across the leadership and across the rank and file membership, um, you had the feuding afterwards and you had the growth of the provisional IRA mm. afterwards. Because at the beginning it was a 50-50 split, really. But as the troubles took hold, and some people would talk about my research and say it's too inward focusing, focused within the organisations. You have to understand the context, and I completely agree with that. You have to understand the context of what's going on around. With the context of the emerging troubles, uh, you saw the provisionals emerge as a much stronger organisation than the officials. Um, you had the officials having to go back in a way on what they were saying they were going to change. Uh, you had an, you had feuding between the organisations. You had future splits, a future split within the officials where the INLA mm. uh, went uh, emerged as well. Um, so yeah, you can have splits that uh, that are detrimental, that form a more dangerous organisation. But you can have splits with which which actually are a key stepping stone in the trajectory of a peace process mm-hmm. as well. And I mean, that that's uh, a good point to, to look at your the first publication you want to flag up, and this is your first book, mm-hmm. The Origins and Rise of Distant Irish Republicanism. Um, and this is very much based on your on the PhD. Yeah. So this is, you know, the kind of the classic uh, format, complete the PhD, let's turn a chunk of this into a book, and this mm-hmm. is the book that comes from that. Um, T- tell us more about about this and, and some of the insights that. So this book, it was as you said, it's based on my PhD. It's based on interviews with rank and file and leadership uh, figures within uh, with all, within all of the the four splits. I look at I look at the split which formed the provisionals, the split which formed the INLA, the one that formed the continuity IRA, and the one that formed the the real IRA. Um, the reason I wanted to interview people from the leadership and the rank and file is the leadership could give you an insight into what was going on uh, at a leadership level. Why, what were these changes being made? Why were they being implemented? And what was the process leading up to it? Whereas the rank and file membership could give you an insight into what they were hearing on the ground. What was influencing them on the ground? What was influencing their decision-making process? Um, and how they interpreted um, the splits that were were taking place. Um, It was applying this political organisational literature and also it was looking at um, the primary source documents that I was sourcing within the Linen Hall Library and elsewhere. And oftentimes I would go into an interview and I'd be interviewing someone and they'd have a bag load of papers or a bag load of pamphlets saying these are the things you need to read. These are documents produced by the groups which were influential, which explained the position. I digested these. I I placed emphasis on them as well because they were things that were ident- documents identified by my interviewees as explaining their position as well. Um, and these documents, do you, there were some some situations where you could get see the minutes of the meetings mm. that were taking place. So, for example, I've contributed a book, a uh, chapter to a book of, of yours, um, looking at the the um, the role that uh, negotiations within the prisons could play. Mm. And one of the great sources for me in that was the papers of which Rory O'Brodick donated to National University of Ireland in Galway, um, where you had minuted meetings of his negotiations uh, with the English government, and uh, were representatives of the English government. Um, so data, data sources like that were hugely I- important for me. What I found through this is um, 
that when we look at the peace process as a whole, and when we look at Irish Republican involvement as a whole, that one of the ways that we can look at the evolution of the Irish Republican movement is by pinpointing the role that each of these splits had. So 69-70, you had the Gould uh, Megillah leadership wanting to change everything at once. They wanted to drop abstentionism to Dáil Éireann, to Stormont. They wanted to drop abstentionism to Westminster. They wanted to link up with socialist uh, organisations. wanted to step away from armed conflict. Mm. Everything changing at once. And then you had the civil rights movement taking place in the external context as well. You had violence on the streets of Northern Ireland. And you had internal um, debate going on. This is obviously after the detrimental border campaign on, um, on the old IRA, as it would be called. So you had that split that I was talking about, that 50-50 split, and you saw the provost, um, the provost uh, emerging uh, from this as the strongest organisation. Then you move to 86, and you see the Adams-McGuinness leadership wanting to only change um, only change abstentionism, drop abstentionism to Dáil Éireann. And this was obviously after the hunger strikes and after the success of that in gaining uh, support, political mm -hmm. support for, um, for uh, Sinn Féin. You had Danny Morrison putting forward the armor light on the ballot box, mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. saying, we're not going to step away from armed conflict, but we're going to have it hand in hand with uh, political involvement. So small steps, one at a time. And I saw from my interviews and from the documents that what was emerging in the early, early to mid 80s, the origins of that was back in the mid 1970s in the prisons as well. So in all that time of preparation, of preparing, changes in context, of changes in circumstances, but making sure that the support was there before making a move. And with war weariness as well mm. among people. Then you get up to uh, the peace process really taking hold and you had the emergence, uh, you had the, the Mitchell principles being put forward and internal debates within uh, the provisional IRA and you had um, the real IRA emerging then, Mickey McEvitt, others, mm. others involved in there and it's a very different group uh, from the continuity because you had people from the engineering section from the yeah. quartermaster section as well so again this is what I mean about it. it's not about the number of people just it's about the skill set that they had and I learned about the internal wranglings there how there was going to be a push for a vote to accept the Mitchell principles but then they realised they didn't have the votes then they got so, uh, the influential individual of Brian Keenan on side. This is the Adams McGuinness leadership, and he was able to bring others along with him, bring out people like Bobby Story, Jerry Kelly, others uh, along with them. And then they were able to make the move as well. And you saw the the um, the reels emerging from that. So, like, that would be the story that the book tells. And then it goes on to look at the modern violent distant Republican threat and the key message in that section is yeah they're nowhere near as bad as the provisionals there it's nowhere near as consistent and violent as the provisionals but that doesn't mean we should ignore them mm. they, they like target police officers they target uh, and successfully target prison officers consistently involved in violent vigilantism like your research has shown um, if it was any other organization we it would they wouldn't be ignored yeah so. Yeah, and I mean, we, we've talked about this a lot, kind of as, as, as an aside, um, about the, if you want, the current threat posed by dissidents mm. in Northern Ireland and um, kind of, you know, where they are and where, where they might be going. And, and, and 
certainly when we were looking at 2016 and the anniversary of, of uh, 1916 and you know we were talking about this before and it was kind of a case of whether you know if, if you want to stake a claim this is the year to stake the claim and if you if you can't then that says an awful lot about, a lot about where the movements are and I think it was a bit of a damp squid um, there was no real sense that they were forced to be reckoned with in terms of that and and following on from that a bit and, and, and kind of you know being a bit you know cheeky and devilish um, thinking about Brexit I mean there's a lot of talk about the impact of a hard border between the Republic and Northern Ireland and, and, and how that might feed into the hands of uh, dissidents what's your take on that? I think that like you see in a, the day before recording, you see Seraph, who are a political, uh, a dissident political action group, saying that in meetings that they're going to take advantage of this. Um, I think it's a hard border would be detrimental uh, to the peace process. A hard border um, will give further justification for the violent dissident groups. And I think one of the, the core messages that I always want to get across in my research is there is actually nothing wrong with dissident republicanism. It actually promote like, there is nothing wrong with disagreeing with the track that Sinn Féin have taken. But it's when that manifests in violence. Mm -hmm. That's the problem. That's when there's an issue. Um, I'd be very supportive in people questioning um, the, the uh, political direction of Sinn Féin that Adams has taken and others, everyone has the right to do that. But it's when that manifests in violence. And that's why I would always differentiate between violent dissident republicanism and dissident republicanism. Mm. Um, but with, going back to the question on Brexit, it would give justification. It gives justification for the um, continuation of an armed campaign. Mm -hmm. It gives a visual justification. Look, no matter what uh, the Sinn Féin leadership say to you, we're nowhere clear, closer to a united Ireland. We're actually further away from it now. Um, it sort of visualises for them. Uh, it, it provides an opportunity for them to, to say, this is what we're opposed to. It's similar to when the targeting... Uh, like, it could be used similarly to the targeting of Catholic police officers because what they were trying to achieve there, the violent dissident groups were trying to achieve there, in my mind is that they wanted to prevent uh, Catholic police officers from joining the police service of Northern Ireland so that it could retain an uneven, unrepresentative mm. police mm. force, which can therefore give just further justification for the continuation of their activities, saying, look, this police force don't represent you. This is a British police force, predominantly Protestant police force. Uh, therefore, they don't represent our communities. We will represent our community. Um, and that would give a visual en enemy for them. The hard border would give a visual uh, geographical justification uh, to say, look, we're actually moving backwards rather than forwards in relation to this. We're not moving closer to a united Ireland. We're moving much further away from a united Ireland now. And that's, I feel, how they could take advantage of it. Um, you would you see it not the huge upsurge in activity that could have potentially happened around 2016. But you see a consistency in activity. Uh, you see a lot of localised vigilantism. Uh, you see less so of the nationalised uh, paramilitary terrorist activity. Um, but that's not to say that it's, it's gone away completely. And mm. it's something that definitely shouldn't be ignored. If you look at the threat levels today, 
it's it's sort of saying that it isn't being ignored. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, Brexit is a uh, it's uh, it causes a whole lot of problems in a whole lot of ways, but that's definitely one. That's of definitely them. one. I think that's one. I think you know the Brexit debate is going to run and run mm. and run, and that's one that I think will 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 bubble away on the sides while while people tend to worry. Certainly in the UK, they tend to worry a bit more about the the economic impact. But if um, um, I think that is one there to, to, to flag up as a potential problem. Um, following on, and I mean you can see an evolution in your research. So it, it, it's although I have to say the uh, the jihadi start off for the PhD yeah, <laughs> is is the bit of the outlier, yeah. but it, the Looking at the splits, and, and I think you really got into it, into it in a very detailed and with the interviews, really you know personal way in terms of understanding the, the interpersonal dynamics mm-hmm. behind the splits, which, which shed new light on, on the reasons why people were going in certain directions. And this then feeds directly into what, what I'd say is one of your major current streams of research, and this is the, uh, the role of trust yeah. in terrorist organizations, mm-hmm. um, interpersonal trust. Mm-hmm. Uh, and how uh, and and the impact that that then has on the decisions people make, but also the directions that movements go in, and this has largely been a completely unexplored topic. So one of the things you flagged up is the trustworthy terrorist is one of your articles, and and and, and this ties into this. Tell us more about trust yeah. in this context. So there are two pieces that I put forward for this: um, the trustworthy ter- terrorist, which is. A chapter which is uh, featuring in the the new book by Orlin Lynch and Javier Argomenes. Um, but before that was a, an article called Trust in Me, um, yes. which looked specifically at the decision making as to why people would join one side over another in the aftermath of a split. And when you, if we look at terrorist groups, political organizations, or any organization, and you've got this factionalization of the organization over ideological grounds. You would logically say, well, the reason why I would, why one person would join this group is because they believe in what that group stands for in relation to this argument that has caused a split over uh, the reasons why, why, other, why others would stay with the parent organization. And that holds up to a certain extent. But I found through my interview research in the PhD and afterwards that there was something a lot more powerful than that. While people were committed to an ideology, wasn't the rationale behind the actual split, the ideological rationale behind the split, which actually made their decision for them. It goes back to an interview I did with Um, Mick Ryan, who was the intelligence officer of the official IRA, and he said, when looking uh, at the splits, he said, this wasn't hard political, hard-nosed political people making these decisions. These were people making decisions based on their personal connections, Mm. on who they knew, who they trusted. So yes, while they might agree or disagree with one side over the other, what was really powerful for people I found is that, do I trust the people in this group? Do I trust individual members, do I trust the leadership, and also, do I distrust the people mm. in the other group as well? I've interviewed people about splits, and they've said, yeah, I actually found out that I agree more with the other side than our side, but I actually trusted the people in my movement more. Mm-hmm. Some people, when we look at splits, we have this idea that 
everyone knows what's going on. So mm-hmm. when I interviewed, and as I specified, I, I always like to interview the leadership as well as rank and file of organizations. When I interviewed the, the leadership, the reasons that they give for why they sided with one side over the other and split was the ideological yeah, reason. Yeah. But the reason behind that is they were the ones in that conflict, in yeah. that discussion that caused the split. So, of course, the reasons they're going to go one side over the other is on the grounds of what side of the argument they're on because they're heavily involved in it. When you get to the rank and file, a lot of them don't know what the rationale behind the argument is. Now, I, there was one person I interviewed who was, uh, went on to become a member of the INLA, and he grew up in the Diva Street Flats, uh, end of the Falls Road, mm-hmm. and he said at the time that there was the discussions around the split in the official IRA, which went on to form the INLA, there was a local leader came, local leader who they all trusted, and he gave them the option, you can join, stay with the officials, join the INLA, or stay neutral. Mm-hmm. And he said, but I think this is what you should go for. We, we should join, stay neutral for the beginning and then join the INLA. Um, and he said, no matter what he said, we would have gone with him. Mm-hmm. If they had sent someone over from Lansdowne Road saying the exact same things, mm-hmm. we would have gone against him <laughs> because we would have distrusted him. Yeah. But it was that was really emphasizing to me that when we're looking, not just at splits, but when we're looking at decision-making within um, the psychology of terrorism, if we're just looking at purely from ideological reasons, we're missing a lot. Yeah. If we're saying this person joined X group because of the ideology of that group, yeah, it might be right, but it's not giving the whole picture. Yeah. And mightn't actually be giving any of the picture because a lot of people who join don't know what the full ideology is. So that first piece, uh, Trust in Me, uh, was specifically about the splits and why people chose one side over the other. The role that family played, trust in different media sources as well. Trust in a number of different sources. However, this more recent piece, The Trustworthy Terrorist, is going back to John's book on Mm -hmm. um, the psychology of terrorism. And it's breaking it down across its different stages and showing that trust can have a role uh, among a variety of stages uh, of terrorist involvement, terrorist engagement, and terrorist disengagement. Why do you become involved in a group in the first place? Because the people you trust in the group, you met an influential individual who you trust who has pushed you forward to join that group, who have drawn you in. That doesn't always have to be someone within the group. For example, Eamon Collins in his autobiography, he said that the reason he joined the provisionals was largely down to a university lecturer he had and who, was not, who wasn't involved in the movement himself, but said, you should join this group. And he trusted that person. You, when it comes to engagement in the group and what when you're actually going out in violent activity, you have to trust mm. the people that you're uh, going out to plant a bomb with, for example. If you don't have that trust, um, it might be detrimental to the success of an attack. If you don't, if when you're chosen by the group to do, and this is specifically looking at group actors, lone actor terrorism is quite different, obviously, when it comes to, to levels of trust, but not saying that it, it doesn't, uh, doesn't have a significance as well. When they're people are chosen, when a group of people are chosen to go out and do an attack, they have to be trusted by the people who are sending them out, by mm-hmm. the leadership. Thomas Heighhammer would talk about when people are joining a group, first of all, that there's 
a trust game going on between the person who's been recruited, do I trust these people who I'm joining, and the person who's recruiting saying, do we trust these yeah. people who are, are coming in? At the point of attack, uh, there has to be trust in the person who's building the bomb, who's making the bomb, who's making uh, the suicide vest. When we come to the point of disengagement, person might be psychologically disengaged from the group, but in order to be pulled out, in order to be uh, physically disengaged, they might require someone that they trust externally to be able to draw them out. Might not necessarily be someone who will be challenging the ideology, but there, ha there has to be an a trustworthy external actor. That could be a former comrade, that mm -hmm. could be a, a local community worker, it can be a range of different people, family member. Who can who will be they're able to assist them to to draw them out and this is when when i talk to um, people like bart Sherman, kurt braddock and those about de-radicalization versus disengagement processes if you're looking at your end goal as being to de-radicalize uh, someone and to change their ideology i think that that might sometimes miss the point of what we're trying to achieve. Because if what we're trying to achieve is to draw people away from violent activity, rather than necessarily challenging their ideology, if our ultimate goal is to draw them away from violent activities, that the role that trust can play in helping them disengage and the assistance of disengagement can be much more powerful in the long term. Mm. And after that, then maybe the ideology uh, can be challenged as well. I'm not completely discounting not challenging of ideology, but a program that is based purely on ideological grounds, I think misses a lot. Yeah, it yeah. misses that human interaction and the role that this human interaction plays. And that whole issue of trust, it goes back to um, it goes back to the origins of my interest in the this area. It's not looking at it from a clinical point of view, not looking at it from an ideological point of view, but looking at it from the point of view of understanding normal human interactions. And I, I think that our role as people who are looking at the psychology of terrorism, our role is to understand. It's not necessarily to condemn, it's not to condone, it's to understand. And with that understanding then in place, then we can find a way to try and uh, draw uh, people away from violence, to try and alleviate the violence if we understand what keeps people involved at different stages, the role that different human interactions can play, it can really, uh, help us out. Yeah, I, I think it absolutely can make a difference. And I think the, you know, the, if you want the central point that stands out from that work is, you know, the, the if you want the primacy of interpersonal dynamics and that ideology is secondary because if you trust the person, the ideology almost doesn't matter. You'll, 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 you'll go with them, you'll follow them. Um, and I think too often people who are looking at it from more of a distance assume that the it's all about the ideology. The ideology is driving everything. Whereas the same as with the rest of human life, it's, yeah. it's, it's much more about friendship and who you get on with and who you don't get on with. Yeah. And um, it has a big impact. Um, what's next essentially for you now, bearing where you've come from and, and the, and the, the, the evolution of, of your research, where's it going next? What, what, what are the, the projects on the horizon now? Well, I'm involved in, in uh, two separate funded projects. One involved with people from University College uh, London, 
um, people from our house university and researchers from Imperial College London where we're looking at uh, the social ecology of radicalization so looking um, at that context I'm also involved in research with an organization called Globesec in Slovakia where we're looking at um, crime terror nexus as well for me from an individual uh, point of view obviously those projects are going to take up a lot of time I want to really engage with this issue of trust a lot more I've got a piece coming out with uh, with Kurt Braddock looking at the role that trust can play in developing online counter narratives mm. as well and focusing in on the role that uh, source credibility has in the communications literature but I'm also going back to that original uh, interest of mine in psychology uh, sports psychology <laughs> and uh, I don't know, I know your origins come from looking at zoology. I don't know how you're going to, to get in, in <laughs> that involved. But one of the things I've always wanted to do um, is look at the role that expert novice differences play uh, in terrorist uh, offenders. Because in sports psychology and across, uh, across a range of activities there in relation to um, human expertise, there is this analysis of expert novice differences. We see it in relation to criminology. Mm -hmm. um, there was a great um, special issue of aggression and violent behavior which looked at expertise in criminology, in criminal activity. It's something that really hasn't been done in terrorism, um, in terrorism research. When we're talking about individuals uh, involved in terrorism research, we often see people writing about, terrorists are like this, mm -hmm. terrorists do this. Or, and they treat them all as the same. And there's a real push now to respect the heterogeneity, respect the differences. So there's a huge uh, push to respect the differences in roles. Huge push to respect the differences at different stages uh, of, um, uh, of involvement in terrorist activity. The location where people are becoming involved. So I would always say that the reason why someone would join the real IRA in Derry would be very different to why someone would join the real IRA in, uh, in Dublin. But one thing that isn't uh, really looked at is the role that expertise played. I'm looking at my bookshelves now and I've got this Cambridge handbook of expertise and expert performance that I'm uh, slowly but surely getting through. It's a great doorstop at the moment. But it's, um, I want to really go in depth a lot more on the psychology of terrorism and look at what this background in uh, other forms of psychology can tell us about terrorist activity. Because if we're saying, okay, we're just looking at bomb makers, or we're just looking at, uh, at recruiters, or we're just looking at financiers, or we're just looking at snipers, and treating that, saying, okay, we're respecting the heterogeneity there, it's great. But it's respecting the heterogeneity within those actors as well, and seeing the difference between an expert sniper and a novice sniper, mm. seeing how, where they're focusing, during a point of attack? What's their lead up? Are they using uh, mental imagery as sports stars would uh, before they're involved in attack? If they are, are they more successful? Uh, you see in Anders Breivik's uh, writings, he would have utilized music to, uh, in preparing for the attack and listened to the same music uh, during an attack as he did during his preparation mm. for the attack to get him in the frame of mind. Um, and it's. I'm currently doing a systematic uh, review of the literature on that um, from a range of different uh, uh, analyses of expertise in terrorist activity. 
uh, and, and expertise in non-terrorist activity, I should say, and trying to see where, develop hypotheses on how that might apply to, to terrorist activities as well. It's uh, it's always going to be a project that will be um, will be something that I'll want to get done. It's a very difficult project uh, to do to find what the correct source of data mm -hmm, will mm -hmm, be. Absolutely. Um, but I think it would something that would would help us out uh, in getting a lot more in depth because we're really only touching the surface at the moment uh, for understandable reasons on the psychology of terrorism. But I think there are important steps that can be made, and by getting that intricate focus on different issues we can really do that we don't have to as i said in, to a number of my interviewees we don't have to be reinventing the wheel we can draw on other areas like i was drawing on albert Hirschman. i'm drawing on this expertise literature I, for the trust literature i drew a lot on people like thorsten mickel uh brian rathbun uh diego gambetta as well looking at their mm -hmm. uh, analysis of trust in political organizations in organized organized crime groups um and that's similar to what I, I'm trying to do now with this expert novel stuff. But it uh, could be a while till it comes out. Might be but, a while. Yeah. No, I, th I, I, I completely agree with you. I think there's a rich mine um, to, be, uh, to be exploited in terms of looking at other areas. I think often the challenge is you need researchers who are rock solid in terms of the terrorism stuff, who mm -hmm. are able then to look at other areas and kind of say, you know what, there's real potential here. Yeah. We, could, we, could, we could expand into this. We could look at this. And it's very tough to do that unless you've got, you know, a strong background, um, which you can see in your case, you know, the, the starting with the splits, moving into the trust side, and then kind of continuing to evolve on from that, which is um, it's not something you can build up over a, a short space of time. No. And on that note, yeah. <laughs> thanks very much. Uh, yeah. What was it like tell, uh, to be on the other side of the table compared to? Um, all of the other interviews. I'm a lot hoarser after this <laughs> than I would be. I'm used to uh, I'm used to sitting back and listening to uh, to great experts in the field just just tell me about their research. And it's been like the overall process of this whole of recording talking terror. And we've got a lot more episodes to come. A number of them in the can already. It's been really eye opening uh, for me um, to the great research that's been done out there at the moment. I would often finish up by asking people, do, they, do you believe there's a stagnation in terrorism research? Um, I really believe that there isn't. Mm -hmm. I, I think that when we, when we listen to the type of people we've had on this, this podcast and will continue to have at all stages of their careers, um, I wanted to pick people who fresh out of PhD, people who have been um, not so fresh out of PhD as well, people who are engaged at all stages of the research. Um, there's some really exciting stuff going on. Mm -hmm. Uh, across disciplines um, and across and looking at a range of different of different groups and different um, roles within the groups and different different focuses in relation to to terrorism research uh, it's been uh, I'm glad I've done it though from the other side as well I give a, get a new respect yeah, for new my respect interviewees for, <laughs> for everything that you put them through yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I suspect until you um, interview uh, Mark Sageman you're probably not going to get somebody who says that uh, terrorism research has stagnated uh, there have been some who say yeah there are bits of stagnation here and there but um, but yeah m in general most are, most are are, um, are positive about it yeah. um, now 
I, I have, I've said this in a number of episodes as well, there might be a bit of selection bias as well in who I've picked and who would agree <laughs> to come on the show where they're talking to me. Mark, but, if you're out there, yeah. we want you, we'll talk to you, yeah. we'll get around, the yeah. invite is coming. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. But no, it's, it, it's, been, it's been good and uh, I hope, hope people found it interesting anyway and continue to find the, the series interesting. But, uh, but yeah, be sure to tweet at us though as well. That's what I would say. We, the more Twitter activity we get, the better. Tweet your responses. Yeah. And on that note, John Morrison, it's been a pleasure interviewing you for Talking Terror. Um, there will be more episodes. Please follow us and listen in Talking Terror um, on... Uh, if you want to listen, listen to us on SoundCloud, if you want to listen to us through the... Uh, Apple, Apple Podcaster, uh, through loads of loads of different um, loads of different uh, podcasting apps. Also, if you want to read any of the pieces that were discussed, uh, be sure to go on our website, um, uul.ac.uk/trc, and go back and listen to Andrew's episode as well. He's nearly at a thousand listens at the time. Yeah, yeah, please, recording. please. Yeah. So, and, uh, and, and I, I'm pretty sure John's one will do well. But yeah, yeah. yeah. No, but it's. Uh, I hope you listen. I hope people continue to listen and to enjoy the back episodes as well as future episodes and there will be future special episodes coming out as well but i think we've rambled on long enough now, we have we you? have yeah. um, and on that note thank you very much cheers goodbye Thanks, Andrew. Bye.